Please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus. We'll be looking at chapters 8 and 9. Please pray with me. Lord, the reality is we, we, don't, we don't really realize how much we need you. Because we don't realize how much you sustain us. We are often fooled into thinking we're sustained by such trivial things. Lord, when hurt, we run to entertainment and other creatures. Lord, when we hunger, we look to ourselves and our own strength to provide. Lord, but we recognize that from you and through you and to you are all things. You've created all things and you've given them to us that we might be sustained, but even more so that we might know you, that we might worship you, that we might realize all that you've created us for. And I ask that you would work today to open our eyes even more to the reality that you are what ultimately will satisfy our hearts. And Lord, that if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, whose religion is, is merely intellectual or volitional, but they've never experienced truly being born again, that in your power and your grace, you might open their eyes to truly believe. And Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here as well, that you might strengthen and encourage our hearts and give us a vision for what it is that you've called us to, even as we look at the ordination of priests in the book of Leviticus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were granted one wish, what would you ask for? If God were to audibly speak to you right now and give you whatever it was you would ask for. What would it be? In Exodus 33, you might recall that the one thing that Moses asks of God is that he might see his glory. Because Moses had previously experienced God's glory on Mount Sinai to such a degree that from now on, that's, that's the ultimate thing that he wanted. He wanted to do whatever he could to behold the glory of God. And to a lesser extent, the Israelites had seen it. They had seen it as the glory of God descended upon Mount Sinai from a distance. A few were able to get closer. But Moses had actually been engulfed within it. And when he was allowed to ascend upon Mount Sinai and personally taste the radiance of the glory of God. And Paul, likewise, had caught glimpses of the glory of God within his ministry. And therefore, he understood that all of his ministry, it was, an offering, it was offering entrance into the glory of God. 
He understood that what he was doing was he was proclaiming a way to behold the glory of God, an entrance into God's glory, entrance into pure satisfaction. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And there were there have been other men throughout history who have experienced tastes of the glory of God. David Brainerd. The famous missionary to uh, the Algonquin Indians. Whose biography was written by Jonathan Edwards, he once said, as I was walking. Unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God, such as I never had before, nor anything that I had the least remembrance of it, so that I stood still and wondered and admired. It appeared to be divine glory and splendor that I then beheld, and my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being, and I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, met God and was profoundly converted at uh, the age of 30 or 31. And he wrote about the experience of his conversion on a piece of parchment and actually had it sewed into the coat that he wore. And it wasn't discovered until after his death. And, and this is what he wrote on that piece of parchment. Year of Grace, 1654. Monday, the 23rd of November. Feast of St. Clement. From about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude. Heartfelt joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. God of Jesus Christ. My God and your God. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. May I never be separated from him. Also, the famous 19th century pastor, Charles Simeon, was once found by his friend while in in his study. And his friend said he was so absorbed in the contemplation of the Son of God and so overpowered with a display of his mercy to his soul that he was incapable of pronouncing a single word. Until at last, he finally exclaimed one word. Glory. Glory. Also, George Friedrich Handel, the one who wrote The Messiah, after he was done composing that great piece, said, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. And I could go on. Just this morning I was reading of stories of John Flavel, another Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, who have had similar experiences and tastes of the glory of God. And I mention these men because they're not mystics they're not charismatics these are these are intellectual these are very cerebral individuals 
who in their study, in their walk, as they prayed and communed with God, had glimpses of his glory that, as D.L. Moody said, he had to ask God to stay his hand. They had a permanent impact upon their souls. So the question I'd ask you today is, have you ever experienced anything like that? A taste of the glory of God. And what would it look like if if a church was defined by experiencing the glory of God? This is what a revival is, a visible manifestation of the power of God transforming, visibly transforming the lives of people so that their one passion, their one desire is to know him and to exalt him and to praise him. The question, of course, we ask is how can such glory be experienced? Where the pursuit is not. Merely religious ritual, not the motions of ministry. But when we come to church longing to taste this. Let me ask you today, why are you here? Quite likely, it may be just because that's what you've just grown up doing. Going to church, reading the Bible, going through the expectations of a Christian. You perform disciplines because you know it's right. And, and you believe that it's good for you. But do you come to church with an expectation that you might be able to experience the glory of God within your soul? Is that what you're longing for? Well, how, how can such glory be experienced? Well, for the Old Testament saint, it was actually very straightforward. That's actually the point of the book of Leviticus. All they needed to do was to follow the commands that God has given in Leviticus and fulfill them. All of the instructions in this book are geared toward this one end of being able to behold the glory of God. And these chapters in particular, chapter 8 and chapter 9, recount the first day the glory of God appears to the nation of Israel after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. And notice what Moses says to Aaron in chapter 9, verse 6. Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. All of the offerings, all of the sacrifices, all of the ordination ritual that we look at today was geared for that end. That they might witness the glory of God and be able to dwell in his presence. Some of you might have been pumped up yesterday because it was the beginning. It was the inauguration of college football. Maybe you had a chance to watch your favorite team. Imagine what the Israelites were about to experience at the inauguration of the glory of God descending through the tabernacle ministry. 
mean, the, the anticipation of this moment would have been palpable. The glory of God would descend after the priests were ordained and after the system of sacrifices was finally inaugurated. And again, this was the purpose of the priesthood to usher in the glory of God. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 29, just the previous book, Exodus chapter 29, and look at uh, verse 43. God says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. He's talking about the tabernacle. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So the whole inauguration of the Levitical system and of the priesthood was so that God might dwell with them, that they might see the glory of God. And so you could think of priests purpose is this the purpose of priests is to usher people into the glory of god priests exist to usher people into the glory of god however the priests had to follow the instructions that god had given they had to follow those instructions exactly in fact and that's why the most important phrase in this section is the lord commanded You'll see it come up multiple times. But again, we're studying the Levitical priesthood. We're looking at Leviticus. And you have to be asking yourselves, how does this have any relevance for us? So, okay, Joseph, I'll give, I'll, I'll give to you the fact that that's how the Levites experienced the glory of God. That's how Israel experienced the glory of God. But what is that? have to do with us. The Mosaic law and the whole Levitical system was fulfilled by Christ. There is no more killing of bulls and goats. If we were to do that today, it would have no effect. It would have no benefit. It would not usher in the glory of God because Christ has fulfilled that whole system. And you could think of Christ as the fulfillment of all of Leviticus. Leviticus is Christ, essentially. Yes, and all that's true, but if you follow me, you will notice that there is a direct correlation to what God commands the priests for us today. And I firmly believe, and I will offer some biblical proof of this, that the same principles that ushered in the glory of God in Leviticus apply to Christians even today. And so let's first understand these principles of the priesthood, and then we'll be able to understand a little bit better how they are very much relevant for us as well under the new covenant. So a brief outline. Three priestly principles for experiencing the glory of God. First of all, priests must be sanctified. They must also complete their ordination. And priests must be obedient. Three principles. Well, again, turn to chapter 8 and look at verse 1. We'll dive right into chapter 8. Verses 1 through 5 record the gathering of the congregation to witness the ordination of the priests. 
And verse 5 then ends with Moses reminding the congregation that this is the thing which the Lord has commanded us to do. So this is not something that Moses and Aaron and the priests have just concocted. This is direct command from God. And he has given this for them, for their benefit. They need to keep in mind that everything that's going on with the priests in chapter 8 and 9, that they're witnessing as a congregation, is for them. The priests are getting ordained so that they themselves might behold the glory of God. And verse 6 marks the beginning of the priest's sanctification for their tabernacle ministry. Moses and Aaron and his sons came near and he washed them with water. The priests must be sanctified. That's the first principle we'll look at. And the first part of their sanctification was washing. They were washed in verse 6. Verse 7 then d- demonstrates that they were also clothed. They were they had to put on priestly garments. The high priest's garments are described in verses 7 through 9. And then the clothing of the priests are described in verse 13. And then after they're clothed, they are anointed. And they're anointed with the sacred oil of anointing, which is actually described in Exodus chapter 30. If you wonder what the ingredients are, they're there. And that, that oil was only for the priests. It could not be used on anybody but a priest, it says. In fact, if it was, that person would die. And then there was also the most significant step in their sanctification as priests, their, their atonement, verses 14 through 21. And the key element, again, in the sacrificial system was what, that sinners might have their sins atoned for or covered And this could only be accomplished if an animal's life was taken. The consequence of sin was death. And so their death atoned for the worshiper's sin. It covered it. And and three sacrifices are described in this chapter. The sin offering, which was for unintentional sins, you might recall. The burnt offering, which signified complete dedication to God. And his complete acceptance of them on the basis of the animal's atonement. So because that animal had atoned for their sin, they were saying, I am completely dedicated to you. And God, in consuming the whole animal upon the altar, was saying, because of that, I am completely satisfied with what this animal has accomplished. So those two offerings. And then there's a third offering, which we actually haven't seen yet in Leviticus. That's described in verse 22. It's the the ordination offering. And the reason it wasn't described earlier is because it's really only for this purpose, uh, for the ordination of the priests. And this, of course, is the subject of chapter eight. The setting apart of priests. So the priests, first of all, need to be sanctified. The second thing that has to happen for the priest's ordination is They need to be completely ordained. Notice verse 23. That in this process, Moses does a curious thing. He takes some of the the, the blood from the ordination offering. And then he applies it to the right ear. And then to the right thumb on the right hand. And then to the right big toe. 
I bet you didn't know that big toe was actually in the Bible, but there it is. Of the right foot. And the point is to signify that on account of the blood, all that they hear, all that they do, and every place they go has now been dictated by the blood of the ordination sacrifice. They are to be completely dedicated in all of their life, in all of their actions, to serving the Lord in the tabernacle. But there's more here. And this is really cool. Notice this. The Hebrew word for ordination, remember this is called an ordination sacrifice. That Hebrew word literally means the filling or filling up to fill or be full. And so the sacrifice was actually called the ordination sacrifice because after it was sacrificed, all the elements that were involved in this ordination would actually be placed in the priest's hands and their hands would be full. They would have nothing left that they could carry. Notice verse 27. He put all these on the hands of Aaron and on the hands of his sons and presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. And this further indicates that the point of the ordination sacrifice was to demonstrate that their whole lives were now to be fully devoted to serving the Lord. Their hands were going to be full of his service. Moreover, the whole process of ordination was going to take a full seven days. Now think with me. What else in Scripture took seven days to accomplish? Creation, that's right. And that's exactly the point. God is bringing about a new creation here with the establishment of the tabernacle. He was making a new kind of Eden where men could again dwell in his presence. Just as the world was created in seven days, likewise the ordination of the priests would take seven days. And during this entire time, they had to remain in the tabernacle. That's a key word. They had to remain or abide in the tabernacle. Notice verse 35. At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you will not die. For so I have commanded. So the, the priests need to be completely devoted to their role as priests and they needed to be completely sanctified, which would take this entire seven day period. And during that time, they needed to stay within the tabernacle in order for that sanctification to be complete, that ordination to be complete. And so the third principle for the priests to usher in the glory of God after being sanctified was that they needed to be obedient to what God had commanded. So let's look at that principle. They need to be obedient to what God commanded. Chapter 8 closes with verse 36. Notice that. And it says this, Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things which the Lord had commanded through Moses. 
And if you were reading through chapters 8 and 9, you would recognize that this phrase comes up again and again and again. It is extremely repetitive, and that is to make an extreme point clear. Extremely clear. Critical point, extremely clear. You need to do what I command. And this repeated emphasis demonstrates that it's a critical principle necessary for the priestly ministry to be effective. Obedience is absolutely necessary. And that we'll see in chapters 8 and 9 that Aaron and his sons do exactly as the Lord commands. They do everything he told them to do. And so in chapter 9 verse 1, it says that after they had remained in the tabernacle the full seven days, upon which they repeated all the sacrifices that we saw in chapter 8, the sin offering and the burnt offering, and even the, the ordination offering for seven days, at the end of that seven-day system, everything was done. They did exactly as they were told. And then the rest of chapter 9 records that all they need to do is some final sacrifices. And then, too, they fulfill the Lord's commands perfectly. And so after everything is done, Aaron then pronounces his benediction. It's the same benediction that we see in Numbers chapter 6. I'll also end the service today with this benediction. And then notice what happens in verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is what all of the congregation had been waiting for. And it happened. They saw the glory of the Lord and the fire that came out from the presence of the Lord signified that he was completely satisfied with everything the priest had done. It's God's way of saying it works. I'm ready. You can come into my presence. It's all set up. I'm here. There's nothing keeping you from me anymore. You could imagine the glory of this moment. The first time since Eden, men could dwell in the presence of the glory of God. It's amazing. So how do these three priestly principles apply to us today? How might we too be able to taste even glimpses of the glory of God. Well, first, I think we need to recognize that there is a priesthood in the New Testament. And we already know that Christ is the high priest. He's the ultimate high priest. Right? That's the point of the whole book of Hebrews. But are there priests today, like the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church assert? Well, look at a couple passages with me. Revelation 1 6. Revelation 1 6. John says, And he has made us to be a kingdom, 
priest to his God and father to be the glory to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God. Also, first Peter two, five, you might be familiar with you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The point being, we, all of us Christians, are priests today. That's what it's saying. We are priests who have been washed. We are priests who have been sanctified, who have had our sins atoned for. And who have dedicated their life to serving Him. We no longer live according to what we want, but according to what He wants. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Not living for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And it seems that this establishment of a new priesthood is what Christ was trying to communicate to his disciples on that night when he was betrayed. When he went into the upper room and gave what's known as the upper room discourse, which is depicted in... Chapters 13 through 17 of the book of John. And what you'll notice in reading those chapters and Leviticus 8 and 9, that the principles of the priesthood seem to be clearly upon Christ's mind. And which makes sense given the purpose for which he came. For instance, remember what he said in John 14 too. In my father's house are many rooms. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. And there's been songs written about that. But what's he talking about? The only other time that that phrase, my father's house, is used in Scripture, guess what it's referring to? The temple, the tabernacle. You might recall John 2, 12, 16. Sorry, John 2, 16. When Jesus cleanses the temple and he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then in 2, 19, he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. And the disciples later on recognized that he was not referring to the temple. He was referring to the temple of his body. What's Christ saying? He's saying, I'm the temple. I'm the new tabernacle. I am. And so when he says, in my father's house are many rooms, what do you think he's referring to? Remember John 1.14? The glory of God tabernacled among us. We have seen him. Point being, Christ is the new temple. And a new temple needs a new priesthood. And so consider what else he says in light of these three priestly principles that we see in Leviticus 8 and 9. First of all, priests must be sanctified. Christ informs the disciples that they have been separated from the world. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Right? They're not like the world anymore. They've been separated from it. They've been cleansed and atoned and washed and and set aside. 
And notice how you see that in the rest of John. If you haven't flipped to John, please do so because that's where I'm going to be for the next few minutes. Notice what he does, of course, in, uh, in John 13. He washes the disciples' feet. They're washed. Notice also John 14, 15 through 17. He speaks to the Holy Spirit. Speaks to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what that anointing oil signified throughout the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in the New Testament, the, that, the oil always signifies the presence of the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, atonement. Well, that's the whole point of the discourse, right? Jesus says, I'm about to give up my life for you. I'm about to enter into the Holy of Holies, the real Holy of Holies. I'm about to go into the presence of God. Offering myself up as a sacrifice. And notice what he says in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. He's going, to, he's going to make an atonement for them. Lay down his life for his friends. So the priests are sanctified. The disciples are sanctified. Also, priests must be completely ordained. Again, remember in Leviticus that those priests, in order for their ordination to be fulfilled, their sanctification to be completed, they needed to remain where? In the tabernacle. Lest they die. Notice what Jesus says in John 15. Beginning in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the world word. Notice that. Already you are clean. That's an interesting word to use. Because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me. That is, remain in me. Stay in me. Dwell in me. Don't leave me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Kind of mixes his metaphors here a bit. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Again, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. You see the emphasis? Stay, stay, remain, remain. Don't leave me until your sanctification is complete. Christ is telling disciples that they are not to leave him until the process of being sanctified was done, lest they spiritually die. If any branch doesn't bear fruit, doesn't abide in the vine, it'll be cast off. And again, if they remain in him, if they abide in him, the new tabernacle, they will bear much fruit and they will see the Father's glory. So again, they needed to abide. They needed to remain in Christ in order to be completely sanctified. Well, thirdly, third principle Priests must be obedient. If you keep my commandments, he says in John 15, 9, you will abide in my love. 
Right? And this is the, the refrain that we've heard throughout the book of John. Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Okay? So those principles are seen. But didn't you say, Joseph, that the point of Leviticus was that Israel might behold the glory of the Lord? Well, if that's the point of the priesthood and the disciples are being established as the new priesthood, the, the first fruits of the priesthood, you could say, then where is glory? Where do we see the glory? This is cool. It's where Christ begins. And it's also where he ends. Notice in John 12, when Christ finishes his public ministry, he does so with a rebuke from the prophet Isaiah. And notice what Isaiah says. Verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw his glory. And nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you see the problem? The reason they didn't get to see the glory of God is because they weren't looking for it. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, whose very purpose was to bring in the glory of God, weren't looking for the glory of God at all. Why? Because they were obsessed with the pathetic glory that comes from man. And so Christ rebukes them through the prophet Isaiah, who saw the glory of the Lord, and says, because you're not seeking the glory which you should be ushering people into, you won't see it. Because you would prefer a more pathetic and earthly glory. But notice also how Christ ends the Last Supper when he prays in John 17 the high priestly prayer. John 17, 1 through 5. Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And again, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Why is Christ so consumed about Talking about glory. Why does he want glory so much? Because that's the very reason he's dying. He's going to offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice, fulfilling all of Leviticus so that the disciples might see the glory of God. He's fulfilling Leviticus. Notice verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. Father, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Everything Christ did in all of his ministry was geared toward this end. Christ died for this end. Christ establishes the priesthood of the disciples for this end, that they too might be his priests who might help others be ushered in to his glory. 
but they would just be the first. And this opportunity, this call to be a part of the most glorious priesthood that has ever existed is open to everyone. Jews and Gentiles, anybody who wants to truly behold the glory of God, who have recognized that the glory of man is pathetic, it is junk, it is trash, it will not satisfy. For everyone who longs for the glory, the only glory that comes from God, it is found in Christ. All they need to do is come and believe. And this is why we see these three priestly principles get carried into other instructions in the New Testament. These themes continue. Priests must be sanctified. The glorious news is that Christ has thoroughly accomplished this principle. He's already done this one. You can check this one off the box. If you're in Christ, you are sanctified. You're washed. You're clean. You're ready to serve him. First Corinthians six eleven. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you get that? Let that land upon you. Brothers and sisters, what took the, the, the Levites, the killing of blood and goats, has been done for you. And all you need to do is believe it. And you can be a priest, sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And consider this, this is why the the, the saints that are depicted in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, are depicted wearing white robes. The robes of priests. Because they're priests. So we can check off this. Christ has done this for us. So what else do we need to do to to behold the glory of God? Well, priests must be completely ordained. Again, the point of remaining in the tabernacle for seven days was to parallel the need for believers to remain in Christ during the period of their sanctification. Like we've been sanctified, but that process, though it's, In one sense completed, it's also not yet done completed, right? We still struggle with sin. We still get defiled. And so we call that process sanctification, growing into Christ-likeness. And remember that the Hebrew word for ordination was the word meaning full or filling. This is awesome. The Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the ordination sacrifice, that word filling, is the word teleos. The word that we saw many times in Philippians. The word that means to be mature, to be complete, to be perfect. And that's why maturity, Christ-likeness, was the aim of Paul's ministry, right? Colossians 1.28 To them God chose to make known how the great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. You see what he's saying? Paul understood that he was a priest calling other priests to pursue their sanctification, to be completely perfect. To be completely Christ-like. It was, it was as if he was the priest within the tabernacle reminding the priests, don't leave. Dedicate yourselves fully to your roles as priests. That's what he calls us to do even today. Fulfill your role as servants of the Son of God. This was also the aim of his life. Philippians 3.12. Right? We saw this just a few months ago. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, already mature, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has laid hold of me. So he saw his role as helping others become mature as well as himself to become mature. But also remember the completion of the ordination, in order for that to happen, it took seven days, right? And they had to abide in the tabernacle building that seven days. I'd noticed this before, but it hit me all the more. The way to pursue Christ's likeness, the way to grow in Christian maturity, is to abide. Those two are saying the same thing. If you abide in Christ, you will be mature. You will bear much fruit. You will behold the glory of God, right? John 15, right? So the way we pursue sanctification is by abiding. Which is exactly what we saw in Leviticus. We need to abide in order to be completely sanctified. So we need to abide in Christ while pursuing Christ's likeness, which will then produce complete maturity. And in order for us to experience the glory of God, we need to pursue maturity. And once we're fully mature... Without any doubt, we will behold the glory of God in all of its splendor, right? That's promised to us. Of course, that complete maturity will happen when? When we get our resurrection, right? And we will experience it with even greater splendor than even the Israelites saw it. Because we will be without sin. But I think God desires to give us still just tastes of his glory, Glimpses of it, even now, which is what we will experience if we've been sanctified, if we're continuing to pursue maturity, and finally, if we're obeying him, right? And I think this is probably the biggest principle that we neglect. Because we live in a culture, even a Christian culture, that really doesn't take sin very seriously. We're pretty casual about our disobedience. And we chalk it up to the grace of God. But remember what Paul said in Romans 6. Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Forbid it. Absolutely not. Christ did not free us from sin so that we could sin more. Christ did not die simply to offer us permanent forgiveness as as necessary as that was. Remember why Christ died. 
He died so that we might behold the glory of God. That's what our Christianity is for. That's what our faith is aiming at. It's not just simply about doing good things, about escaping wrath. It's got a far greater end. Yes, we need to escape wrath, but that's been taken care of. Christ has paid for that penalty. What now? Behold the glory of God. Abide in Christ. Pursue Christ's likeness. Obey his word. Take his word seriously so that people might applaud you. No. Good night. No. Not for the glory that comes from man. So that you might behold the glory that comes from God. We must take sin seriously. We must take God's word seriously. And not to be burdened by it, brothers and sisters, but to be led by it into his presence so that we could experience what Peter describes in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Father, that is absolutely what we want. Lord, we don't want to just, again, go through the rituals of religion. We want to behold your glory. We want you. So I pray that you might help us to apply these same principles to our lives today that we might have access we might absolutely have that and behold the glory of God. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Son. Appreciate it. So, it's not too hard to transition to the Lord's table. Because that's what was on Christ's mind, right? Was this establishment of the priesthood as he sat with his disciples. And he held up the bread and he held up the cup. And he said, in no uncertain words, I'm going to be the atonement for your sin. And so as we eat of the bread as we drink of the cup. Let us remember the very real sacrifice that was paid that we might become priests to our God. There was a cost to this glorious calling that we've been given. And it was a glorious cost. But it was also a beautiful cost. And it's one that the Lord desires that we celebrate together. And so, I would invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, if you hunger for righteousness and his glory, if you believe that you can only have an atonement for your sins on account of what he's done, that, 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 that salvation is by faith in his work alone and not in your good works, well, then I would encourage you to come and partake of the, the bread and the cup.